Hello, and welcome to the Energy Policy Now podcast from the Climate Center for Energy Policy at the University of Pennsylvania. I'm Andy Stone. I have a quick note before we get started with today's podcast. This is Energy Policy Now's last episode of our first season. We'd like to thank everyone who joined us so far, and we look forward to offering new conversations on the defining issues in energy policy when we're back in September. Now on today's podcast. The issue of regulatory burden, which is the cost to businesses that come from complying with government regulations, has taken on an increasingly high profile. Within a month of his inauguration, President Donald Trump released an executive order calling on government agencies to eliminate two old regulations for each new rule they develop. A subsequent executive order called on agencies to establish task forces to identify regulations to repeal, with the aim of, quote, alleviating unnecessary regulatory burdens placed on the American people. The Trump administration has framed regulation as a drag on economic growth. Absent from the executive orders, however, was any mention of the benefit that regulations have brought in the areas such as the environment and public health. And recently, the fate of regulations that would limit methane emissions from natural gas production, the pollution of rivers and streams, and carbon dioxide emissions under the Clean Power Plan have all hung in the balance. On today's podcast, a pair of regulatory and economic experts will look at the benefits and costs of regulation. They'll provide insights into the give and take that takes place when government weighs new protections. Our experts are Alan Krupnik, a senior fellow at Resources for the Future and co-chair of the RFF Center for Energy and Climate Economics. Also here is Kerry Colonese, the Edward B. Schills professor at the University of Pennsylvania Law School and director of the Penn Program on Regulation. Alan and Kerry, welcome to the podcast. Good to be here. Yeah, it's great to be here. Thanks. Alan's work at Resources for the Future focuses on the design of pollution and energy strategies. He was a senior economist on the President's Council of Economic Advisors during the Clinton administration and president of the Association of Environmental and Resource Economists. Kerry Colonese specializes in the study of regulation and regulatory processes and has served as consultant to the U.S. Department of Transportation, the Environmental Protection Agency, and other agencies. He is the founder of the Regulatory Review, the flagship publication of the Penn Program on Regulation. So let's start out with a bit of background on what's going on in the debate over the benefits of regulation and concerns over regulatory burden. Has the battle over regulation really intensified lately, or do the headlines simply amplify something that has already been there? Kerry? Well, certainly contestation and controversy over regulation has always existed. Uh, This is a country founded on a distrust of government power and government interference in the private market. And uh, the, uh, the, the realm of regulation, therefore, is front and center on a battleground of political ideologies in America. That said, uh, certainly things have um, have increased in their intensity, and this administration has certainly made uh, regulation and regulatory reform one of its top priorities. There is a lot that the administration is looking into, a lot of processes that are underway. Uh, I, I don't think it's uh, possible to say at, at this juncture that the, the, the world of regulation has dramatically shifted uh, because to repeal a regulation that exists on the books requires going through the same process that it took to put it in place in the first place 
and that can take some time. Uh, you'll also see, by the way, though, I think uh, in more subtle ways, uh, probably a retreat on the robustness of enforcement activities, and that can start immediately. We also have in the whole mix uh, budgets that are aiming to reduce uh, the amount of financial resources that a number of key regulatory agencies um, have available to them. The EPA, for example, the Trump administration has proposed reducing its budget by over 30 percent. So at this point, it really has come from the top, from the president that maybe is is driving some of the the extra interest at this point. Absolutely. It's uh, front and center on the Trump administration's agenda. So if I could could jump in here on that, Um, I've been at this game for uh, over 30 years, and I don't remember ever being so concerned about uh, a new presidency and their take on uh, regulation as I have been in the Trump administration. And that concern led me to uh, lead a a letter uh, writing and signing campaign among about 100 economists and lawyers, of which Carrie uh, was uh, one of those who, who signed this letter, calling for the administration to consider the benefits of uh, the foregone benefits of eliminating regulations when uh, it was considering eliminating regulations. The executive order, as you mentioned in the beginning, only mentions being concerned about the cost savings uh, from eliminating regulations. But one wants to be concerned about both the cost savings and the benefits that would be foregone generally to health and safety before you go about uh, Uh, taking regulations off the books, however long it takes. And uh, so this was something that I've never seen uh, so much concern about among the people who uh, are my peers. So, Alan, at this point, what are some of the specific regulatory flashpoints we're looking at? What are the regulations that are are at the root of this current debate? I think you've mentioned some of the the key ones. Um, It's very clear there's a wholesale... Uh, assault from the administration on the Obama climate change agenda. So that meant targeting uh, methane rules, and uh, the Obama administration had made a big effort to uh, reduce methane, primarily coming from the oil and gas sector, from leaks in uh, at various points in the process of extracting and delivering gas to market and the oil to refineries. So the, these are big targets. And then the Clean Power Plan, which was going to address CO2 emissions from electric utilities around the country, uh, leading to significant reductions, uh, that was also um, being uh, pulled back by the administration. So these are a good few regulations that were immediately addressed by, um, by the administration. And then Congress using uh, what's called the Congressional Review Act uh, to review regulations that basically were um, passed by the Obama administration in the previous six months before the inauguration, um, tried to eliminate a whole slew of regulations, although only several made it through uh, for actual elimination, one being this uh, what's called the Waters of the United States. 
So uh, There was a release from the uh, EPA and the Army Corps of Engineers earlier this week that there is a proposal to rescind that Waters of the United States rule, I believe. Yeah, the, uh, the Congressional Review Act that Alan mentioned that, that was used to rescind uh, a total of 14 regulations across the whole federal government that were adopted, as, as Alan said, at the very end of the Obama administration. That included a Department of Interior rule that was protecting the waters of streams around uh, coal mining uh, operations. That's gone. But there's a separate rulemaking that the EPA had engaged in called the Waters of the U.S. Rule. And that's a, that's a rule that defines the jurisdiction, essentially, of the EPA and the extent of the reach of the Clean Water Act and its protections. And the Waters of the U.S. is another rule that the Trump administration has targeted. And as you said, Andy, the EPA has just recently issued a proposal to pull back on that rule, basically shrinking the scope, the geographic scope, really, of the coverage of this of the Clean Water Act's protection. And uh, and they're going back to uh, what they'd like to do initially is go back to uh, the old rule on the book so it was smaller and a smaller footprint and then restart a new process and come up with a new rule because uh, there's been actually ongoing litigation about the waters of the U.S. rule that requires them to go back. Uh, in addition to some of the other flashpoints that you've mentioned, Alan has mentioned, uh, there's, some, there's a targeting of fuel efficiency standards. Uh, there's been a delay in ozone or, or smog air quality protections. So there are a, a, you know, a good 10 to 12 key environmental regulations that are on the books that are in, in the process of being re-examined and reconsidered. In addition to that, the EPA has opened up a public comment process in which they've invited the public to comment on rules that uh, additional rules that that they think the EPA should should roll back or reconsider. Uh, interestingly enough, that public comment process garnered many more. I mean, hundreds of thousands of comments uh, from the public in support of the existing environmental Do regulatory those protections. Hold much weight? They uh, they certainly uh, signal the degree to which. The public is supportive of environmental protection, and I think those uh, are not – they're not – they don't hold any legal weight, but uh, I think it can certainly weigh on the minds of political appointees at the top of the EPA and certainly to members of Congress. Interestingly enough, we have seen reports in the last several weeks of Republican members of Congress telling the Trump administration that they should not – think to uh, cut the EPA's budget by as much as they have proposed. Uh, the, this, this is a politically uh, risky strategy for the EPA to take to roll back public protections for the environment. Americans do really value environmental protection. And those comments, uh, that all just is, a, a, I think, a, a political signal to the administration to tread very carefully. Uh, I should mention I should mention one thing on the comments. Uh, we've been tracking these comments that are coming in from industry uh, at Resources for the Future, and a lot of those comments are on rules, as Carrie was saying. Um, we but we're ca- we've been capturing the industry comments and various um, trade associations and actual uh, firms have had a long list of complaints about regulation. 
And so the administration has given them an opportunity to kind of put in one place or several different places, Department of Commerce, EPA, and OMB, as some, to, to put these all together. But in addition to that, the industry has been commenting on activities that aren't really considered uh, regulations per se. They have a lot of concerns about permitting times, for instance, for uh, permitting various energy infrastructure like uh, pipelines or uh, the electric, electric grid and so on that take, in their view, an inordinate amount of time to go through. So I expect to see uh, activity from the administration in responding to these comments as well as on their uh, activities to roll back rules. One of the, the major things that we were, were going to look at today is actually the benefit-cost analysis that looks at these regulations. What are the true costs? What are the benefits that come out of them? But just before we get into that more specific question, what specifically are the asks from industry or, or I guess, what are the, the accommodations that the administration is really trying to make through rolling, uh, rolling these regulations back? Well, you know, most environmental regulation, what it's trying to do is take costs to society from economic activity, these spillover effects or what economists would call externalities, and take those costs of pollution that are borne by the communities and the general public and and impose them back on to the parties that are creating those costs, the, the industry. So uh, you, you ask, what does industry get out of uh, a regulatory rollback? Well, in a way, it's sort of a, a, a way of subsidizing the industry by saying, well, you no longer have to pay for the costs that you're imposing in, on the rest of society. Well, okay. So I might take a little bit of issue with that. I think, I'm not sure it's exactly a subsidy. I mean, the the uh, the agencies are trying to um, protect health and the environment, and um, in, in doing that, there's going to be costs imposed on industry. So to the extent that they are freed from these costs, yeah, one could view that as a subsidy. But I think partly what industry might argue is there are a lot of unnecessary regulations. Uh, their standard practice has already sort of caught up to what the regulators were trying to see happen in a given industry. Um, and some regulations they think are were just pretty stupid in the first place, and they should get rid of those. Uh, how much of this is actually true and how much of it is posturing is hard, hard to know. But um, I think uh, there's, there is a group of people who would argue that a lot of regulation is uh, can be eliminated or modified without affecting health and the environment. And again, the extent to which that's true is up for debate. So that brings us now to the issue of the benefit-cost analysis. Uh, my understanding is that these, these analyses are uh, frequently uh, performed when a new regulation is proposed. Uh, Alan, could you tell us a little bit more about how do these analyses work and when specifically are they used? Sure. Well, the analysis itself is uh, required to be used for what's called all major regulations. This is from an executive order that dates uh, way back that started in the Carter administration, uh, and Reagan administrations, and has moved 
moved up through and has even been endorsed by the Trump administration. It's called Executive Order 12866. And, and there's an earlier one as well that kind of put this in, in place. And the idea of uh, and a major regulation or any of these uh, a regulation with benefits to the economy or costs to the economy over um, a year that are greater than $100 million. And it's surprising how many regulations uh, do meet that test. So there's, hmm. there's, there's about 114 regulations uh, just that affect the oil and gas sector, either, either directly or indirectly, over the last 10 years. So there is a uh, big economic impact here, yeah. So there's a lot of regulations that would fit this case where they're required to do benefit-cost analyses. And what a benefit-cost analysis does, uh, in its most simplest way, is it just arrays all the positive things that are going to happen from this regulation against the negative things. Improvements in, in health and safety, there's going to be reductions in risks to uh, premature death and morbidity, uh, in accident rates, uh, what have you. And then on the other side, there are costs associated uh, with uh, meeting these regulations, uh, reducing emissions, uh, and so on. So there may be costs that are kind of leading to plant closures or job loss. Those are kind of embedded in the cost analysis as it's conducted. And what you want to do is look at the relationship between benefits and costs. If the benefits exceed the costs, then one can feel that overall society, this is a regulation that's going to benefit society. If it's the reverse, then overall one can think that this regulation is going to hurt society along the dimension of economic efficiency. It's not talking about morality. It's not talking about ethics. It's not talking about who wins and who loses. It's just saying that in the aggregate, society might be better off with regulations where benefits exceed the costs and worse off where benefits uh, are less than the costs. Carrie, uh, what have these analyses found for you know, some of the, the high-profile issues uh, such as methane emissions and clean power plant, et cetera, at this point? Well, you know, we've talked uh, a, a lot about some of these high-profile rules that uh, the administration is reviewing and wants to, uh, to, to rescind or, or roll back. The waters of the U.S., for example, being one. When the EPA did its um, benefit-cost analysis on this rulemaking, uh, it came up with benefits uh, on the order of $570 million a year from this uh, against uh, costs up to 465 So it, 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 it does impose uh, costs, certainly, on, on the economy, but it delivers benefits that are estimated to be greater than those costs. These estimates, by the way, are conducted by the agencies, but under review by an office within the White House called the Office of Information and Regulatory Affairs. And they they conduct a peer review and a pretty a, a robust uh, review of all of these regulations. And it's the same staff working in that White House office year in and year out, administration to administration. They're analytically very sharp. Uh, the Clean Power Plan, you mentioned that, uh, that had uh, benefits from uh, both 
the reduction of carbon and re- prevention of, of additional greenhouse gas accumulation and climate change. Uh, but it also yielded just general health benefits by reducing overall emissions from the electric utility sector. And when EPA estimated those uh, benefits just from the health effects, uh, they came up with a number of about up to $34 billion per year uh, in health benefits. And we're talking about reductions in premature mortality, uh, asthma cases avoided, heart attacks avoided, hospital admissions and so forth avoided. Uh, these are very significant benefits that come from uh, environmental regulation. Again, from tra- taking what are those externalities, those spillovers, those costs that are borne by the asthmatics and the children and the elderly who suffer from uh, the f- ravages of particulate and, and ozone exposure that come from air, air pollution. And, uh, and, and taking those costs and internalizing them, putting them back on the companies. Just have a, I have to ask a question around that. Those those analyses that look at health benefits are those universally accepted? Are those debated as well? How much it may cost, you know, to to uh, treat or prevent a disease, that type of thing. Well, there's probably nothing that isn't uh, debated mm-hmm. <laughs> in this in this field. But I think the the science is pretty clear that exposure to particulate matter and yeah, to, in particular, no, no pun intended, does uh, lead to health, uh, negative health effects and is a source of premature mortality. There's just a study in the New England Journal of Medicine uh, that came out today, actually, uh, by researchers at the Harvard School of Public Health that said it, you know, we lowered the, uh, the, the regulatory limits on particulate matter. We could end up with savings of about 12,000 additional mm-hmm. premature uh, deaths per year. So these are very significant. I mean, one of the, the clearest cases, and I don't think anybody argues with this, is uh, clearest public health successes was eliminating lead from gasoline. In fact, the benefit-cost analysis that Alan was describing is done before regulation gets adopted. Uh, it, it, this was done during the Reagan administration, and the benefit-cost analysis showed how much the benefits would outweigh the costs of eliminating lead from gasoline. And that actually led the Reagan administration to speed up and put out the the regulation that eliminated lead from gasoline. And I think the same uh, uh, scientific uh, consensus is is very clear around exposure to things like particulate matter as well. Yeah, I want to add on the reason you get these huge benefits. Carrie mentioned $34 billion dollars. Um, A lot of that has to do with multiplying these estimates of the the premature deaths that would be avoided by lowering, let's say, in this case, particulate matter uh, emissions and uh, particulates in the air. Um, Multiplying those number of deaths avoided by what's called the value of statistical life. Uh, And this this number is a... um, a number that uh, comes out of literally hundreds of studies in the United States and, and around the world where uh, researchers have used uh, survey, survey techniques and uh, statistical techniques uh, to elicit from people how they feel uh, or how they act regarding reductions in their risk of dying prematurely. 
and um, you can look into labor markets to see how wages differ in uh, jobs that are more risky than others. Uh, you can ask people in very structured questionnaires how they feel about reducing their risks of death by a little bit. And then from that, you can work up to what's called the value of statistical life. It's really people's willingness to pay to reduce their risk of death by a, a little bit. That's really the better way to look at it. And the number that comes out of these studies in the aggregate, the one that EPA and the other parts of the federal government use, is about $9 million for each statistical life um, or premature death avoided. So you can imagine taking that number and multiplying it by, you know, a, a few thousand deaths avoided per year, and you get into big numbers very, very quickly. A lot of these these studies that we've been talking about are prospective. Are there retrospective studies that have been performed, uh, Carrie, that have shown the accuracy of those studies that were, uh, you know, initially looking at what the uh, regulation would bring? Right. I think it's a really important distinction. We've been talking about the benefit-cost analyses that agencies do before they undertake a regulation, but those are forecasts. They're estimates. And there's reasons to think that, you know, just with any kind of forecast, uh, that there's going to be some error associated with them. Uh, and certainly when it comes to estimating the costs of regulation, uh, we should probably think that once a regulation is put in place and rolled out, that industry will have an incentive to try to find cheaper ways to achieve uh, what the regulation calls for. So uh, there have been some studies that say, let's look now after the fact, after regulation has been in place for a while, and see, you know, what are they actually delivering? And there's far fewer of these retrospective studies. We need more of them. But the ones that do exist tend to show that benefits generally often are outweighing the costs of regulation. For example, Congress mandated that the EPA conduct a retrospective study of all of the uh, air pollution regulations that EPA had implemented from the 1970s on up through the mid-1990s. And when EPA conducted that uh, that study, they found, and I'm going to give you their, their numbers in 2016 dollars, uh, they found a, 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 an average or central estimate of the uh, benefits that came from all of the Clean Air Act regulations of something on the order of 40 trillion dollars. That's not a small amount. No, not a small amount at all. Uh, And you compare that with their estimate of the costs associated with all of those air pollution regulations, which is closer to about one trillion. Hmm. They're looking looking at a a, a benefits uh, that that outweigh the costs on the order of uh, four orders of magnitude greater than, than than the costs. This obviously can become personal for people when jobs are involved. And one of the criticisms or the critiques from, uh, from the White House in particular has been that regulation hurts jobs, slows economic growth. Uh, Alan, can you give us any insight into that? Yeah, I wanted to just let your listeners um, hear a little bit about, about how economists think about jobs when you're doing these benefit-cost analyses, trying to trace the effect of regulations on the economy. Um, Imagine 
And so there's a thought experiment that might be useful. Imagine that the economy is at full employment. So that means that if a plant closes or if somebody loses their job as a result of a regulation, they're going to get hired somewhere else. By definition, the economy is at full employment. Jobs are scarce. Employers are looking for workers. We're actually at this position right now. We're what's called full employment. It does mean that there's some degree of unemployment, but actually, according to U.S. government definitions, we're really at uh, or very close to full employment right now. So this suggests that when, when listeners hear about all these job losses, what this actually means is, is that people in uh, one area – one um, firm or one sector are no longer working in that sector, but they may be working somewhere else. They may be working, maybe they were working part-time, and now they're working part-time somewhere else. Maybe they were working full-time, and now they're working part-time somewhere else. Um, It's very difficult to track what actual uh, job losses occur on net at the end of the day as the economy and the labor market adjusts to various regulations. Having said that, there are also always winners and losers for regulations. So if you think about the clean power plan, for instance, on electric utilities, this, while this uh, was going to make generation from coal less economic and would have led to more losses of jobs in the coal industry, it would have increased jobs in the renewable energy industry. It may have even led to a bit of a rebirth in the nuclear industry. And certainly, um, natural gas jobs have been increasing greatly as a result of low natural gas prices, and they would have had a further boost probably from the clean uh, power plant. So there's always gains and losses, and what you generally hear about are the losses. And, and by the way, I think it's important to add to that that the, the losses of jobs come from things other than regulation all the time. In fact, you mentioned the, the jobs in the coal sector. Uh, well, yeah, th- those have been declining because coal as an energy source has been declining but not because of regulation as much as uh, competition from the natural gas sector, which has been able to deliver uh, energy at a much lower lower cost with the development of technology for hydraulic fracturing or, or fracking, for example. Uh, but this is just one example. The economy is constantly in flux. Jobs are constantly in a churn with people in and out and moving jobs. We don't have very many travel agents uh, as we used to, uh, but we don't necessarily think that, well, we ought to uh, uh, you know, adopt a policy prohibiting people from booking airline tickets online. Uh, because we want to save the uh, the jobs of travel agents. There's this is part of a dynamic economy, and when regulation is working right, what it's doing is taking those costs that industry is incurring on society and and having them pay for them, uh, and that that's what it should be doing. If in the process some people are having to find some other jobs, uh, well, you know that's part of a dynamic economy as well. And society's overall better off having uh, some support for those people with retraining programs and transitional support, no doubt. 
Uh, but but that's something that that we really might want to talk about needing for a much uh, you know, larger set of causes about shifts in the economy as well. Mm-hmm. When you look after the fact, um, and there are a number of studies that have tried to look after the fact at, and when there have been regulatory changes and looked at areas that have more regulation and less regulation and try statistically to determine how much of an effect regulation is having on employment levels it generally comes out as a wash. Now, this is not to say that there's not individual stories that people can tell about their facility going out of business. I mentioned the lead and gasoline rule. That rule put a lot of lead uh, additive companies out of business. Uh, There's no question about it. But when one looks across the broad sweep of the economy, uh, the, the research evidence is pretty consistent and clear that there is a rather trivial uh, net effect of of regulation on employment levels. And in some cases, this is because regulation is generating new jobs. As Alan was mentioning, uh, a regulation in the environment might actually stimulate renewable or cleaner technologies and then stimulate, of course, employment in those areas so, as well. So it can result in innovation. Okay. Uh, exactly. Let's go to a related issue, uh, it, looking at the business level here. You know, one of the issues that has been talked about as well is the cumulative impact of regulation, which is the idea that every year we have more regulations they're piling on. Uh, if you're a business, it just it, it becomes more difficult to deal with that. Also, there's an issue of larger businesses have efficiencies that allow them to deal with regulations in ways that smaller businesses may feel more impact. Kerry, can you give us some insight into that? Well, the, uh, the the concern is certainly a real one. If these regulations aren't delivering benefits to society, then adding additional costs does act as a barrier to entry to new firms, and and that can that can have an anti-competitive effect. But if the regulations are well designed, and if they are delivering benefits that exceed the cost, then um, the f- fact that it might require some larger companies or more capital uh, available companies to, uh, to to comply with those is in some sense uh, just the, the you know the the price that one has to pay for for correcting market failures and uh, you know at the end of the day it's it's not clear to me that the the whole of all of the regulatory burdens is necessarily a lot greater than the sum of each of its individual parts and that's the that's the kind of claim that people are making about cumulative burdens and there's uh you know maybe a theoretical argument that that could be made but there isn't strong empirical evidence to suggest that that's a a, a very real or important concern yeah i would agree with that too um you mentioned small business andy and uh you know, along with these cost-benefit analyses, the agencies are also supposed to do analyses of the effects on small business. Um, and they don't, the agencies don't have to, um, just because a, a regulation uh, shows that the benefits to the economy exceed the costs, it doesn't mean they necessarily have to go through with that regulation. And uh, if there are big effects to small business, then uh, they can do something about that. And in fact, in many regulations, they actually, uh, you will find that small business is either exempted or given longer tar- time to comply or um, even facing less stringent regulations. 
So uh, there is scope for the agency uh, to take these kinds of effects into account when it's designing regulations and, uh, and evaluating them. Are there times when a regulation may not make sense from a pure benefit-cost analysis, but for some reason uh, government would push that regulation through anyways? Uh, Alan? Yeah, so uh, I actually, when I was in the Clinton administration, uh, one of the first issues that I dealt with was this Order 12866, and how what the relationship between benefits and costs was going to be with respect to decision making at the agencies so the rule the executive order preceding that would say well you should not go ahead with regulations unless the benefits exceeded the costs but the clinton administration and in our deliberations we decided that that word should be justified justified so if the benefits justify the costs, one can still go ahead with a regulations. And in fact, if the costs justify the benefits, you could go ahead as well. So the I or not go ahead. So the benefit cost test that's in these executive that executive order uh, is, is a weak one. It says you look at the benefits, you look at the costs, you recognize there are other factors like who wins and who loses and effects on small businesses or on uh, various groups in society, poor people, that those effects can outweigh even a regulation where the costs are exceeding the benefits, but nevertheless, you think you should go ahead with that regulation anyway. And I remember uh, one case in particular in the administration over uh, regulations of stream flow into sewers that the benefit-cost ratio was... Uh, the costs were going to be higher than the benefits, but the administration decided to go ahead anyway because of some other reasons that could be legal reasons or other reasons that were associated with that rule. And sometimes uh, the, the the value of, of that change that the Clinton administration made from the what had been the previous executive order that Reagan had adopted. The Reagan administration said benefits have to outweigh the costs, and Clinton said that the benefits need to justify the costs. Well, another reason for that change is that it's not always possible to quantify or, or, or more importantly, it may not be sensible to monetize all of the uh, benefits that might come from regulation. It sometimes... Both on the costs and the benefit side, these could be qualitatively uh, identified rather than uh, quantitatively or, or, or monetarily uh, noted. Uh, one common example that is often given outside the environmental area it was a Department of Justice regulation aimed at preventing circumstances of rape for prisoners uh, while they're in prison. And, uh, you know, very difficult to say what the monetary equivalent is of that kind of uh, abuse and crime. And yet it might be sensible to go forward nevertheless with a regulation that addresses that problem. In the environmental area that's, I think, become less um, necessary to, to, to have that kind of softness to the test because uh, by and large, in the environmental e- economics profession, there's been tremendous strides over the last 40 years in, in actually being able to quantify and monetize the impacts on both the benefits and the cost side. 
So at the end of the day, uh, is it possible to generalize about regulation? Do benefits outweigh costs? Yeah, well, it would be nice to end this with a clear bumper sticker, right? Benefits uh, <laughs> exceed costs, go regulation, or or vice versa, you know, regulation is uh, a net loser for society. Uh, it's, it's, it's hard to do um, because in some sense, there isn't a generic regulation. Each regulation is aimed at solving a particular problem. And what we really need to ask is not just, you know, are we for or against regulation, but are we getting for each regulation the most that we could be getting? Now, having said all that, I mean, it's instructive uh, or illuminating to just take a look at the benefit cost estimates that have been conducted over the years for environment, major environmental regulations. And if you look uh, uh, during the Obama years and you tally up all the benefits and you tally up all the costs, I mean, you're getting uh, a total estimates of benefits that vastly exceed uh, the costs. I mean, I just uh, had a research assistant look into this and, and come up with some of the numbers where uh, at the upper range during the Obama years, major environmental regulations were expected to deliver about 480 uh, billion dollars. This is in 2016 dollars, uh, 480 billion dollars uh, per year in benefits. Uh, uh, you know, at a at a, a cost of at most 47 uh, billion dollars. So we're um, we're looking at you know 10 times the number of benefits from costs. And interestingly enough, if you go back and you look at the same data during the Bush years you see very much the same uh, swamping, of the benefits swamping of the costs of environmental regulation by about the same uh, order of magnitude as well. So that's some indication when you combine it with the the limited retrospective studies that by and large, uh, environmental regulation is uh, in the aggregate delivering benefits that do exceed the costs. Uh, this isn't to say that there aren't clunkers out there of environmental regulations that either aren't delivering any benefits or or not enough benefits to justify the cost. There aren't. It's not to say that we couldn't make improvements. I think there's a there is a lot of opportunity for improvements. But if we look uh, overall, uh, society is the evidence indicates getting more out of the current environmental regulatory regime than uh, it's actually costing society. I agree with uh, with that summary. Society is getting more than, uh, uh, I think generally, than uh, it's giving up for these regulations. The administration likes to talk about uh, benefits to prosperity and benefits to growth. But the other side of the coin, or actually maybe it's also along the same side of the coin, is the benefits to the quality of life. Every, it may be strange coming from an economist, but uh, dollars are not the only uh, important thing. Uh, your income the, of yourself, the income of the economy, these are not the only important things in life. It's the quality of your life that's important as well. And, you know, economists, have, as Carrie said, have gone to great lengths to try to monetize improvements in quality of life so you can compare the benefits with the costs. But at the end of the day, you have to look at both sides of, of this coin 
to really understand whether society is going to be better off or worse off. And at the end of the day, in, generally in these regulations, we're all better off. And if you're looking at prosperity, too, I think that quality of life, and there's, again, some really good research to support this, the quality of life actually generates dividends in terms of employment prospects and overall uh, earnings. So there's uh, research that shows that uh, people who are exposed uh, in childhood to uh, higher levels of air pollution have lower IQ levels, uh, lower prospects for employment, and lower uh, income uh, over the course of their their careers. So uh, prosperity isn't just going to come by rolling back the costs that regulation imposes upon industry. Prosperity comes about by thinking about the net benefits, the benefits minus the costs of regulation. And that's what, uh, to go back to a point that Alan made at the very beginning, what is um, troubling about some of the executive orders that this administration has issued is uh, sometimes a lack of recognition that there are benefits and that those benefits not only contribute to a better quality of life, but actually longer life and a more prosperous life as well. Today's guests have been Alan Krupnik, a senior fellow at Resources for the Future and co-chair of the RFF Center for Energy and Climate Economics, and Kerry Kalanisi director of the University of Pennsylvania's Penn Program on Regulation. Alan and Carrie, thanks for talking. Thank you. Thank you. And thanks to our listeners for tuning in to this episode of Energy Policy Now. We hope you've enjoyed the podcast. And a quick note to our listeners, Energy Policy Now will be going on break until September when we'll be back with a new set of insightful conversations on policy issues that define our relationship to energy and its impact on society and the environment. In the meantime, get updates on new research from the Climate Center by subscribing to our Twitter feed at Climate Energy. And for more information on the Climate Center, check out our website, climateenergy.upenn.edu. See you in September. Have a great summer. 